Good evening, and welcome to the Gallery of Curiosities. I'm your host, Osgood Underby. Tonight's story takes place in the American Museum of Phineas T. Barnum, the greatest cabinet of curiosity ever assembled, bar none. Not even Mr. Ripley, that god amongst curio collectors, has been able to recreate that lost wonder. The story is written by Elise Fourier Edy, a playwright and author based in Los Angeles. Her most recent play, The Pink Unicorn, has been performed all over the U.S. and Canada. It will be read for you by Mr. Keith Edy, an actor and screenwriter also based in Los Angeles. He has appeared on small and big screens everywhere, usually as a likable geek, but also as a doting father, an international spy, and most recently as someone's nightmare boyfriend. <laughs> One might suspect they are related. You Go Back by Elise Fourier Edie. Read by Keith Edie. I met the demon because my sister Maddie got a job working for P.T. Barnum as one of his circassian beauties over at the American Museum. She washed her hair and beer every day and combed it backwards until it stood on end like a crown of wet feathers. She wore colorful trousers, kept her shoulders bare, sat on a platform behind the whale tank on the second floor and pulled in more scratch than anyone in our family ever had in their lives. This was 1864, the country was at war, and at ten years old I was still a little young to be done in a blue world uniform and fighting for the Union. So that made me sole man in a house of four women, all of us jammed in a fourth floor tenement on the Lower East Side. I don't know what you're thinking, tenements in New York, gee whiz, but it wasn't that bad. Our place was dark, sure, and tiny. It smelled like you think with nothing but an open pit in the back for a privy. But it wasn't the rat-infested misery factory it was gonna be. Not yet. It was pretty doggone Jake, and once Maddie got the job at Barnum's, I didn't spend a whole lot of time there anyway. Maddie was called Zrebetta Zoladot, and had to memorize a whole history of being a prince's daughter and one of fifty wives to some sheik in Araby, so she could answer questions and give out autographs to the thousands of dykes and hayseeds who flocked to the American Museum every single day. Even at ten, I knew my sister was a looker with clear skin, fat, bouncy breasts, and straight white teeth. But Maddie was more than just a pretty face. She could act. Take one look at her bottomless brown peepers, and you'd think she'd been raised on nothing but poetry and peacock stew. She'd whisper, I was just a little girl, and he took me to be his woman slave. Some poor masher would be eaten out of her hand in no time. Jeez Louise, the Circassian beauty. What a crock, I tell you, but Maddie did it up hunky-dory. Man, say what you like about P.T. Barnum, and plenty did, believe me, but that American museum of his was a corker, like nothing you ever saw and the best 25 cents you ever paid for fun. It seemed to have everything in the world inside it. Theater, zoo, freak show, and exhibit hall waxworks. Not all of it was bunk, neither. Maddie might have been a big humbug, but the giants and midgets and albinos were the real deal. Heck, you could spend a week just gawking at the pictures Bonham had hung on the walls. He knew it, too. Fact was, old Bonham got so worried about folks spending all day just soaking it up, he regularly gouged them by putting up fancy signs pointing this way to the egress. 
The poor jumps who followed the arrows shuffled right out the door because it turns out egress is just another word for Ann Street. Bonham made them pay another 25 cents to get in the museum again, too. After all, the exit was clearly marked. At P.T. Bonham, nothing got past that guy. Until the demon you go back, that is. But I'm getting ahead of myself. I'd never seen the American Museum until Maddie got hired, but once I got a load of the place, I never wanted to leave. My ma took me to see Maddie, and then that same day I also gaped at a cage filled with snakes, contemplated an Egyptian mummy, and wondered at a trapeze artist somersaulting through the air in a red body stocking. I heard a lecture given by a gal who had worked as a Confederate spy, eyed the eight-foot-tall woman's juicy, oversized bosoms, drank a cold lemonade, and heard a violin played by a man who weighed 45 pounds and called himself a living skeleton. Finished that off by splitting my sides at the antics of two white whales cavorting like kids in a tank of ocean water on the second floor, their whale breath blowing out of their backs, smelling like dark caves, mystery fish, and brine. <sighs> Boy, howdy, that was the best day of my life. I figured if Maddie could have a job at the museum, I'd better get one too, since otherwise I was going to take to a crime just to scrounge admission every day. Of course, I couldn't walk on a tightrope or lecture about the war. I finally lit on the bright idea of pestering the fishmongers at the docks to let me deliver the whale and seal food twice a day, and after that, it was a simple matter to make myself indispensable to Professor Cohn, who managed the animal exhibits, and Mr. Greenwood, who was the boss of everything else. I sat outside their offices for two straight weeks, and every time one of them came to the door, there I'd be, little Bobby Tubbs, hat in hand, saying, with all the goodwill and energy a boy can muster, "'Can I help you, sir?' Pretty soon they needed me for everything, from posting letters to feeding the bears. Not long after that, Mr. Greenwood put me on the payroll, and I was in a kind of boy heaven. Pennies in my pockets and free run of the museum whenever I liked. Cripes, that was a year of skylarks. And when the war ended, the world was suddenly a jar of golden beer with the lid just off, hiss, popping. Soldiers all home by summertime, my dad was one of them. Music ringing through the streets, and me, a boy with the best job ever. I called Mr. Barnum Chief, and I know what you've heard about him, but he was a good man, if he regularly stretched the truth to make a buck. Never in your life saw someone who flogged it so hard, like he had a runaway steam engine packed in his head instead of a brain. He never stopped looking for stuff to display. Every week, something new would show up at the museum. A replica of Lincoln's boyhood cabin, a little girl spotted like a leopard, a couple of angry-looking alligators... More often than not, Barnum himself would preside over each arrival, a big smile on his face, peering, patting, boasting, his dark hair flopping in his face. He called himself the Great Showman, but he really was more like a great little boy, tickled blue at each new curiosity. Right about the time the war ended in 1865, he all of a sudden got political aspirations, campaigned for the Connecticut state legislature, and zipped out of town to make his mark on the government. Why anyone would choose sitting in a meeting hall with a bunch of sweaty men in suits making laws and such? When they could be making a sea lion learn to sit up and talk, I do not know, but off he went. So when the demon Hugo back arrived in New York one hot day in August, it was just me and George Miller and Mr. Greenwood who saw the thing. I like to think if Mr. Barnum had been there, had actually laid eyes on the creature, everything would have turned out different. But he wasn't, and he didn't, and I suppose that was all the difference. I want to be clear here. I'd seen some dog-ugly stuff in the American Museum. Mr. Barnum wanted people in the door, and he would do whatever it took to bring them in, whether it meant sewing a fishtail to a stuffed chimpanzee and calling it a mermaid, or buying a couple of feeble-minded children off of a Mexican family and give them a new life as the Aztec Wonder Twins. When he told Mr. Greenwood he was getting a demon shipped in a silver-lined box from South Carolina and to please unpack him for immediate display, 
I figured the chief was given his usual line of dressed-up manure, and the box would turn out to have nothing more in it than a seasick pangolin or a bobbery ape. When George Miller, the lame, slow-shouldered, ham-fisted galoot who dealt with the new arrivals, popped the lid of the shipping crate for a peek, and Mr. Greenwood and I gathered round, we knew right off we were looking at something different. We were in the basement of the museum, a crowded cave of a place packed with such a mass of junk, empty cages, crates, and papers there seemed to be no end to it. Up above you could hear the footsteps of a thousand souls walking through the museum's front doors, and down the hall you could feel the steam coming off the hippo cage where those fat, strange creatures sometimes roared and sometimes slept underwater looking for all the world like rocks with a tail. When George cracked the top of the crate, at first I thought Hugo back was sculpture, just a big, bald head with pointed bat ears and a ridiculous beaky nose painted an ugly red. His eyes were closed as if in sleep, and he smelled faintly of brimstone, and I remember a palpable wave of warmth washing over us, like the crate contained a lot of banked coals. George said something like, Nothing to see here, gents. Just a brick made out to look like a head when blam! Here the thing's eyes suddenly popped open. A pair of huge yellow peepers stared up at us, and all three of us screamed. Gloria wouldn't have been any more strange and unexpected than if your favorite armchair suddenly started walking around the room. The black pupils careened left, they zipped right, and the mouth spun to life with this awful pointy tooth smile like a dog's. The demon unfolded his tiny, spindly body, spidery thin, all long, impossible arms, and sinewy skeletal legs, and my heart shriveled right in my chest like a worm in the sun. See, you got used to seeing strange things at the American Museum. The chief specialized in strange, after all. And whether it was a Fiji mermaid or a midget wedding, you expected your hair to stand on end now and then. This creature made my very skin shrink as soon as his yellow crazed gaze slithered in my direction. And when he opened his mouth and started speaking in a voice that sounded like a shovel grating in a coal bin, my heart gave a tremendous thunderclap, my ears started to ring, and I fell on the floor in a dead faint. I woke, covered in sweat, with George crouched over me, his forehead creased. Is it still here? I squeaked. To my shame, I sounded for all the world like one of my sisters waking from a nightmare. George nodded glumly. Put the lid back on the crate. Gosh, I couldn't stand to look at it, and that's the truth. I sat up. Mr. Greenwood stood nearby, mopping his face with a big handkerchief. A gas lamp flickered, making shadows on his cheekbones. We cannot possibly put that thing on display, he whispered. It would drive every customer from the premises. He added with a strange laugh, What on earth could Phineas have been thinking? I'm sure Mr. Barnum never actually beheld it, sir, George said. He couldn't have and then asked to have it delivered, could he? Mr. Greenwood shook his head. When I heard the demon was arriving, naturally I assumed, Well, I suppose I never imagined something so... Real, I ventured. Something so real, sir? Mr. Greenwood gave a thin, sickly smile. I never imagined something this upsetting. Leave it created, George, for the time being, until I can contact Mr. Barnum and ask what he really expects of this acquisition. There came a muffled coal shovel sound from inside of the crate, and we all shuddered. It sounded like the damn thing was laughing.
Next thing I knew, I was running down Broadway through the sticky summer air to send a wire to Mr. Barnum asking what he really meant to do with You Go Back. What kind of name was that for a demon anyway? And could he come to New York and behold the monster at his earliest convenience? When I got back to the museum from that errand, Mr. Greenwood sent me out again, this time to get some books from a rabbi named Saul Abramson. Books from a rabbi, Mr. Greenwood, I asked. Shouldn't we contact a priest? The church is right down the street, sir. Mr. Greenwood grimaced. As a universalist, Bobby, Mr. Barnum has no compunctions about consulting a wide variety of scholars for his pamphlets and exhibits, and Saul is philosophically immune to our more heretical endeavors. I nodded, even though I had no idea what heretical endeavors were. In truth, I understood maybe half of what came out of Mr. Greenwood's mouth, but he was a spanking nice man anyway. He gave me a penny that day and told me to buy a bun while I was out. I didn't, because the demon made my stomach flip, but the penny was nice all the same. The rabbi lived in a fourth-floor tenement just around the corner from my own place. He had a long beard and nice brown eyes cozied in a nest of bags and wrinkles. I liked him right away. I explained that Mr. Greenwood had sent me for some reference materials about demons, and he raised one of his bushy eyebrows. Demons, he said. I thought the good Mr. Barnum would not show anything inauthentic in his museum. His eyes twinkled with that last comment, of course. Well, we don't know what Mr. Barnum was about, sir, I said, since he's up in Connecticut just now. But we think we have an actual devil, see? Here the old Jew laughed, so I added, my mouth going a little dry, remembering the creature's yellow eyes. Really, it can't be anything else except something from hell, sir, I promise you. And we don't know which demon he is, so what we should do with him, or if you know, a still a cage is enough to keep him bound. Shuddered, thinking about the demon thing getting loose, and then I wanted to put my head in a vice just to squish the thought out as soon as it came. The old man's brown eyes kindled like the whole thing was a joke, an actual demon. You don't believe me? I don't believe in hell, child, and devils are rarer than you think in this day and age, he chuckled. Let me fetch my coat and I will see what species of monkey Mr. P.T. Barnum has captured now. I don't think you want to, sir, I said, hating the way my voice quavered. The old man raised his bushy eyebrows again, but I pressed on. Meaning no insult, sir, but you're an old man, aren't you? And my heart about stopped when I saw that thing. I felt my skin crawl, remembering the way its jointed legs unfolded like an insect's. Well, that sounds too good to pass up, said Rabbi Abramson. He plucked some books from the shelves around us and pressed a heavy, musty stack into my arms. Then he fetched a wooden cane from a corner of the room. Let us make our way north, my good young man. I have seen many horrors already in my life. In the interests of religion and scientific inquiry, I believe I will let my heart take its chances. I'm used to moving very quickly up and down Broadway, dodging here and there like a bat on the hunt. But that day I had to go slow to allow Mr. Abramson to keep up. I didn't mind at all. I dragged my feet even more than the old man did. But it's a fact that if you put one foot in front of the other and keep doing it, you'll always get where you're going. And sure enough, much sooner than I would have liked, I found myself at the museum's back door. George sat on the stoop, smoking a pipe and looking as sad as I've ever seen him. Did something happen? I asked. It didn't get away, did it? He shook his head and said, sounding for all the world like a man with one foot in the grave. Seen that thing. It's like all I can think about now is the war, and Mr. Lincoln dying, and losing my baby girl Bess to the flux. It's like I can't remember any good thing at all. Can you? Mostly I just feel like I'll never sleep or eat again. Well, you're young, George said as if that made any sense at all. You need to get away from here, George. I turned to Rabbi Abramson. Sir, I'm going to take George up to see the whales if you don't mind. I added as George's downturned mouth lifted in a small smile. 
While I'm up there, I'll hunt down Mr. Greenwood and tell him you've come. I don't recommend you try to look at the devil, though he's just down the hall in the basement. It's... Well, no one should see that thing while they're alone. I mean it. Again, I moved slower than I ordinarily would, for George made his way upstairs walking bent over like an old man dragging his lame leg. We could hear the whales splashing before we even made it to the tank. They were wonderful things, those Labrador whales. Like fish, only also like children. Even with their tails and fins and strange white skin, they reminded me more than anything of my little sister, Jenny, her who died and loved me best while she lived. I parked old George right up against the tank, fetched him a bucket of fish heads he could toss in the drink, and made sure he was looking at them instead of whatever mess was inside his head. Then I hunted down Mr. Greenwood. I found him in Mr. Bonham's office, puzzling over a telegram that might have been delivered while I was off fetching the rabbi. He orders us not to move the thing. Mr. Greenwood's eyes were large and dark in his pale face. He wants to see it. He's most insistent. He said, Adam. And Phineas isn't coming back to New York for weeks, Bobby. I goggled. We have to keep the thing here at the museum for weeks? Glory, what do we feed it? And what if it escapes? He flapped his hand as if to shoo away the thought. Didn't you get some books from the rabbi? Yeah, and the rabbi came himself, I said. I added, he don't believe in demons, sir. Did you know that? Well, I didn't either, Bobby, until today. Mr. Greenwood gestured that we should make our way downstairs, so then off the two of us went, passing George, who still wistfully watched the whales cavort, but like a man looking at something beautiful from a long way off. We found the rabbi slumped next to the crate, his whiskery chin resting on his cane, and his eyes staring in the distance. The books he had brought were strewn higgly-piggly as if he'd been opening them up one by one and then throwing them around like birdseed. My throat closed up tight when I saw the look on his face. You saw it? I asked. The rabbi shook his head no. No, he said, and then, as if trying to convince himself, he added no, again. But it spoke to me from that box it resides in, he winced. I recognized its voice. You've heard it before? I gaped. You know its language? Mr. Greenwood asked. The rabbi shook his head. It spoke to me in Hebrew. It called me by my name. He started to cry, real quiet, but tears poured down his face in a flood. It is here to teach a lesson, as are all such things God made. But it's one I already knew and did not want to learn again. I truly did not. You were right, my boy. I had no business coming here, and you would be wise to leave this place as soon as you can. What can something like that teach us? I wondered. The rabbi turned his gaze to Mr. Greenwood. The demon has named Yukobak, he said. It is a servant of Balzavov, the Lord of Flies. How it has been captured, I cannot say, but to keep a demon caged is stupidity and to keep it near an unthinkable risk. You go back, it does not belong in Mr. Barnum's menagerie of living curiosities. It is neither living, as we know it, nor is it a curiosity. It is corporeal misery and doubt. Send it away without delay. He rose with difficulty, leaning heavily on his cane. I am going home. I have been brought low today by my pride. Mr. Greenwood held up a hand. If you would tarry but a moment, he said gently. I have a few questions to ask you, Rabbi. Would it be all right if Bobby took some of these reference books upstairs to my office while we speak? The rabbi's gaze slid in my direction. He nodded. I will serve as I can, he said softly, but hurry, please, I don't want to linger near it. 
I watched in silence as I collected the tones in a small, teetering stack. I hauled them up the stairs forthwith. I could hear them talking in low tones behind me as soon as I turned my back. A little while later, I slumped back downstairs to see if I was needed for any other errands. I found Mr. Greenwood alone, staring into space, his tie askew and his hair, usually oiled and neatly combed, standing up on end like my sister Maddie's when she was playing Zerbeta Zoladad. I said, we're getting rid of it, aren't we, sir? We're taking the rabbi's advice? Mr. Greenwood was a handsome man with a big beard and a strong-looking face. He had worked for Mr. Barnum for years, starting as a performer, but finding his place, so to speak, as the great man's right hand. I'd never seen him look so weary as he said, I have told Phineas more than once when he gets a harebrained idea, this is just going too far, but he hasn't listened to me ever, and thus far he's always been right, Bobby. Always. When it comes to the public's thirst for the absurd, for the grotesque, he has shown again and again there is no too far. There has never been a too far. Why should he believe me now? Why should he take my word that this creature really is the limit? Because it is, sir. Mr. Greenwood shrugged. I believe I will go to Connecticut by train tonight, speak to Phineas in person. Perhaps then I can convince him of the danger we are in. He laughed shortly. You want to know something very curious? The rabbi tells me this demon is nothing special, Bobby. A very minor entity in the pantheon, he said. A little firebug, a fry cook. And yet, here he shivered. I fear it as I have feared nothing before, not even the war, not even death itself. We gulped. There's worse things, worse devils than that you go back? How could something be worse than that monster? He's nothing but an errand boy, Bobby. Not even a proper hell prince. More of a servant, really. I felt a little quake in my belly. You're gonna throw that crate in the East River, Mr. Greenwood. You have to, no matter what Mr. Bonham wants. Mr. Greenwood sighed. Go home, Bobby. This really isn't your concern. I stopped by the whale tank before I left to see if George was still there, but he must have packed it in because the hall was empty. I found my sister climbing off her platform, running a hand through a bush of stiffened hair and wiping the paint off her mouth like a white hanky. She offered to buy me dinner before I went home. I told her I wasn't hungry, and I trudged back to the Lower East Side. Then I climbed the stairs to our place and went straight to bed, curling in my corner and putting my dad's coat over my head, even though it was hot as blazes, the air thick enough to cut with a knife. I thought I'd never sleep again, mind you, but I must have, because the next thing I knew I was walking in a dream. At first I thought I was back at the museum, because I stood in an exhibit hall with glass cases and platforms and signs and whatnot, the echoing sounds of footsteps and voices making a kind of murmuring song all around. The nearby exhibits looked like the waxworks Mr. Barnum tricked up, soldiers dressed in jackets from the long-ago wars and ladies in dresses that left their shoulders bare. But once I read the exhibit signs, I quickly realized I wasn't in the American Museum at all, but some other place. One sign set smartly at the side of a sharp-looking diorama said, London, England, 1666. Still another, Nero's Rome. I found my eye drawn to the waxworks which shimmered the way things will in the middle of summer when the air seems to wiggle because of the heat. Their faces shifted, looking agonized in one blink and then crazed with happiness in another. The scene seemed to mean different things from minute to minute. A man in a short white robe with a skirt and a plumed helmet seemed first to be running in fear, only half-dressed with his thing hanging out, while a woman ran ahead, 
Then it looked like he was laughing and chasing her and she was falling to the ground. Then it seemed they were fighting and she was getting ready to grab a rock and throw it in his face. My head started turning like a carousel and I looked at the floor so I wouldn't get dizzy. But the floor was worse because right down there, right by my feet and standing no higher than my knees was Hugo back, red as a cooked crab and grinning his mad angry grin. My stomach shrank into a fist-sized rock. The monster opened his mouth and the coal shovel voice grated. This time I understood what he said through his pointed teeth. Do you like my museum, Bobby Tubbs? Does it please you? I tried to speak, but nothing would come out. My throat had closed on my voice like a butcher's fist around a gooseneck. Old Hugo back went right on. So much good can come from a fire. Burn the pride out of the self-righteous. Burn the crime out of the criminals. Burn the whole damn place to the ground, huh, Bobby? It's hard not to, don't you think? Hard not to burn it all. I could feel my skin start to singe and crisp while he talked. I could feel a fire inside me trying to bust out. Finally, my throat opened, but I said nothing to the demon. Instead, I screamed, and then I woke in my corner with three sisters hovering around, varying expressions of horror and disgust playing on their white faces. For I'd been sick in the night and cried in my sleep, and I burned in my bed with the worst fever I'd ever known. I don't remember much after that. I know they peeled me from my clothes and doused me with water to bring my fever down. I know I wailed about devils to my mother and my sister and the doctor and anyone else who would listen, wailed and implored them to let me talk to Mr. Barnum. I begged my sister Maddie not to go to work, that there was fire on the way, that she must stay with me or she'd die, and how could I lose her too after Jenny? Then they dosed me with laudanum and I slept. And when, days later, I came to myself, weak and starving, my whole world had changed, for the museum was gone, wiped from the world as surely as a hand wipes away a film of steam from a glass window. The fire is a matter of public record, of course, and you can look it up yourself in the New York Times, how the whole building seemed to mysteriously go up at once, and the flames spread with astonishing rapidity, eating up the building and many other besides in the space of just a few hours. How most of the people inside escaped with their lives, but few of the animals did. The monkey screamed in terror, the alligator remained stoic even as he cooked, and my poor whales boiled in their pool, then blistered and melted, whistling pathetically while scores of little boys laughed at the sight. There's descriptions of the waxworks dissolving into puddles, countless treasures lost in smoke, a dribble of snakes oozing down the flaming steps, the freaks of nature once safely availed of the egress, taking refuge in a nearby apartment so they would not be gawked at by the hordes of people who had avidly gathered to witness the conflagration. I was not there to see the museum devoured from the inside out. It was Maddie who told me, fresh from her own escape, her fair skin still black with smoke, her eyes red from crying and coughing. She told me it was the most horrible thing she'd ever seen in her life, and the worst of it was how all of New York watched the spectacle like it was one more delight Mr. Barnum had cooked up for their pleasure. A fire. The deaths of innocence. The destruction of six floors of national treasures, the like of which would never be seen again. Maddie wept. No one's sure how the fire started, Bobby. No one at all. How did you know it? How did you know the museum would burn? Was it Confederates? Abolitionists? Who told you? I said I didn't know. I had a nightmare was all I said, but I had not a single doubt in my mind where that fire had come from. None at all. And the thought of you go back running loose in the streets of New York made me crazy with fear. 
It wasn't until months later I learned the whole story from George Miller, who bought me a chocolate and sat on the stoop to eat it with me. By then it was getting on autumn, and my dad had made me apprentice for a watchmaker, and all of my skylocking days at the museum were done for good. George had gotten thinner since I saw him last. He had a fresh pink scar on his face, and most of his hair had fallen away. He looked 20 years older than he had just half a year before. He said he had trouble sleeping and finding work, and he was thinking he would move upstate to his brother's farm because the city held no lures for him anymore. I'm old now, he said. I got old, Bobby. I asked him about the fire, although I was scared to, and he answered me readily enough, although he kept his eyes unfocused like he was afraid to really look at things while he talked, afraid maybe they might turn into something nasty if he did. George said he had woken that day, fearful of what lay in the basement, but he went to work anyway. He knew he had to go. Upon arriving, he immediately went to make sure the demon had not broken out of its crate. I've seen things in the war, George said, massaging his lame leg the way he always did when he spoke of the war. And I'd done things, Bobby, that I wouldn't have credited myself with. War does that. Makes men do things they would have never thought. And so I knew what scared was, didn't I? And I knew what cruel was, too. He sighed. But when I come down to the basement that morning, and you know how it stank there of the hippos and whatnot, and in the summer it was worse? I nodded. There was whole parts of the basement would about singe your nostril hairs they smelled so bad, especially in the summer, but the basement took the prize. Well... George goes on. There was a new smell over the top of the rest of the stink, and it was that doggone thing that you go back. It smelled like smoke, and it smelled like coals, and it smelled like hell, and it was everywhere, Bobby. It was all over everything. And I got scared it had gotten out. I got scared the damn thing was running around the museum, and I went to the crate to check, you know. I nodded, and I opened the crate, and Jesus pleases it hopped in my face. Here his expression crumpled in disgust bounced off my noggin and blam, exploded everything around it, just like that. He wiped at his balding head. It was me let it loose, he whispered. It was me burned the museum, Bobby. No, I said quickly. No, George. Mr. Barnum had no business putting it on display, and Mr. Greenwood tried to tell him, and the devil gave him a chance, pure and simple, to set him free, but Mr. Barnum didn't listen. But George just shook his head, like nothing I was saying made any difference. So I chewed my chocolate. It tasted bitter and sweet and good. I broke a piece off for George and he put it in his mouth and sucked on it while he fiddled with his pipe. I said, what I want to know is how Mr. Bonham found it in the first place, because that thing, George, that thing was from somewhere else, wasn't it? Somewhere else, not here, from hell or wherever. I mean it. It wasn't like anything here. Nothing I've ever seen anyway, so how did Mr. Bonham find it? George sucked on his pipe. The smoke smelled sharp and fine. Puffed for a long time, and then he said quietly, It was from here. It was from this world, Bobby. I indicated the street with my hand, the dirty paving stones, puddles of pee, the scudding clouds above. A seagull yelled nearby, and a little wind blew some fresh air from the river. I thought of my sister Maddie's lovely face and wee Jenny's smile and the white whales spitting fish breath out of their backs. No, I said. No, George. Nothing I know, no one I know comes from the same world as you go back. George smiled a sad smile. Well, you're young, he said at last. You're young, Bobby. Why does everyone keep saying that, I said. I'm almost twelve. George patted my hand. Be happy it's so. You're young, and you don't know about how people's cruel. You don't know how unnatural things really are. He nodded, seeming to speak to himself, 
And I pray you don't fight no war or drink no gin or gamble away your life and find out anything more about it, Bobby. How unnatural peoples are and how unnatural the world is and how unnatural you are deep in down. It blew out a stream of fragrant smoke and I was both reminded of the whales and of the fires of hell and I shivered. Eat your chocolate, Bobby, George said. I ate it to make him happy, but I didn't want it anymore. I never did see him again after that, nor Mr. Greenwood. I heard how Mr. Barnum flopped as a politician and couldn't make a go of the museum business ever again because fires kept dogging him. Eventually he went in for circuses and then kept his show always traveling, crossing the whole country over and again, sometimes I think so he could outrun any devils that might come behind. My sister Maddie got married to a nice blowhard and they made a pack of ankle biters all call me uncle even though they're scared of me. I have a shop of my own now and I like it fine. Watchmaker's work is predictable and steady. No whales or hippos to be seen. Just cogs and gears and bits and pieces that fit just so, each in its proper place. I'm grateful my dad found me something that doesn't need any fires or freaks, though I think of the museum sometimes and the skylocks and get wistful. But not for long. Never for long. The thing is, I try to stay away from being curious about things now. I suppose I'm like a lot of people when they get older. You can try to show me something startling, but mostly I don't want to look. You can say you got a surprise in a box, but I've seen too much already. I don't want to know anything new, not really. The more I look, the more I don't want to see. I ran into Rabbi Abramson not long ago. He's very old now, bent and stooped. He came into my shop with a silver watch on a chain. His hand shook as he placed it on the counter. His brown eyes leaked moisture, but they were as kind and smart as ever. Until he recognized me, that is. Then he drew back like he'd seen a ghost or maybe a demon. The boy who brought me go back, he whispered. The boy all grown and a watchmaker. I almost apologized, but I stopped myself and just stood there while he clutched at his chest and got a hold of his breathing. Then I said gently, fix this for you, Rabbi. He squeezed out a little laugh and snatched the silver watch from my counter. Maybe not today, he said. It's nothing personal, of course. I just left my wallet and my coins at home. I will come back another day. Yeah, of course, I said. Yes, agreed the rabbi, and then he scrabbled for the door, his coat flapping behind him. I knew he wouldn't come back, and I know why. It's the same reason my father doesn't like to talk about the war. The same reason I don't tell anyone I once ran errands for Bonham's museum, even though I saw all the wonders of our world up close. No one likes to be reminded of the evil in the world. No one likes to remember what they are. When I was a boy, I thought a creature like you go back didn't belong, but my eyes were different then. Time was, I saw thin sunshine and thought of honey cakes and heard bird songs even above the groan of wagon wheels up and down Broadway. I saw children in whale spouts and miracles in hamburgery and a penny in my pocket was the riches of a lost and dreaming kingdom. But now I see you go back and his brothers wherever I look. Whether it's the craven gaze of church leaders, the greedy grasp of politicians, or the despairing maneuvers of the orphan gangs roaming like sad dogs through five points. I see you go back, and I know he's more real than any riches in any song. I see now, too, that it couldn't have been that hard for Barnum to capture him. Finding the devil is easy. Devils is everywhere. Barnum's mistake was thinking anyone would pay to look at one. For putting you go back in the museum wouldn't be no different than holding a mirror up to the world. Barnum wanted to show a caper and curiosity, something along the lines of a pygmy child or an orangutan, but a demon is just the blackness of the human heart. 
And I suppose only animals and children don't recognize that for their own when they see it. There's blackness in the alleyways, and blackness in the newspapers, and blackness in the rivers, and blackness in the skies. I see blackness everywhere, even with the war long over. The devils are always with us, and Hugo Back was right. Every day it just gets harder and harder for me not to burn the whole mess to the ground. The demon Uko Bok is noted in the Dictionnaire Infernal as being one of an inferior order of devils. He is charged by Beelzebuth with maintaining the oil in the infernal boilers of hell, which is not as easy as it may sound, and also said to be the inventor of fireworks and the art of frying foods. Sounds like a useful little fellow, does he not? Indispensable to national holidays, I would say. Ah, but perhaps that is a conversation for another evening. It is time for us to close. Do come again and visit us next time at the Gallery of Curiosities. Gallery of Curiosities is produced under a Creative Commons International 4.0 non-commercial attribution, no derivatives license. Don't sell it, change it, or make a transcript. Like us on Facebook and Twitter. Give us some reviews on iTunes. And if you're feeling generous, consider making a donation so we can pay our authors what they deserve. Our theme song is Ashes Ashes by string punk band Deus Ex Papora Machina. For full show notes, visit us on the web at gallerycurious.com. <laughs>